0: You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Did anybody see the the night sky last night? We've been singing about the heavens declare the greatness of the Lord. Did anyone look out about six or seven o'clock and see what was in the northwestern sky? Did you see the moon and Jupiter and Venus all lined in a triangle? Wasn't that beautiful? It was almost like one of those artist's impressions of space. It seems so close. And uh, just screamed out the wonder of our God uh, to see the three heavenly bodies so close together. Anyway, that's got not a lot to do with this, the, t- the topic this morning, but I thought I should say it anyway because it did tie in with our worship. Um, if we could go now to First Timothy ch- chapter two, verses eight to fifteen, we'll read those. We're just continuing on consecutively through our First Timothy, and. Uh, I, uh, when I shortly after realized what I'd done when I chose this book to, to preach through I realized that I'd bitten off some very hard topics so today we're going to kind of touch on that we're going to read the portion of scripture which is quite controversial um, it was also touched on twice in the last month uh, Joe Shetler mentioned it and then also on Wednesday night um, Dr. Greg Forbes talked about the whole issue of women in ministry and things like that. But we're not going to take off the real controversial thing today. We'll just go to something less controversial and trust that the Lord will um, lead us through it. I come to this um, portion of Scripture with fear and trembling and I've just realized that's the way I should come to all of the expositions of all of the Scripture. There there shouldn't really be... A, a lax attitude in any shape or form when it comes to expounding the word of God. So um, let's just read these eight verses. Therefore I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or with gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with propriety. So you can not see it's quite a... some of those things, I, some of them very hard to understand. Others are clear. And some, like that one about childbearing. What do we do with that? But anyway, not for today. I'm putting off the evil day. But, but not really. <laughs> I realized that there was so much in the first um, three or four verses that there wasn't time to tackle this at all. And it would need a lot more time than that. Ah, uh, yeah. Andrea just said maybe the Lord will come back first and then get me out of it. But well, we just once you take a, a portion of scripture, you can't dodge the issues. You have to face them. So I thought it would be good to have a, a look again at the context of the letter of Paul to Timothy, and the context is a very important uh, aspect of interpreting a passage, but it is not the only aspect however we haven't really looked at the context for a while and I want to go back and look at the context and expand on it so that we might understand better what Paul is saying into the situation so in ephesus it was the center of the worship of the goddess artemis or diana i don't know if you remember in the acts of the apostles uh, that paul and them they got into a lot of trouble and the The men of Ephesus started to shout, For hours on end, great is the the goddess Diana. No, that's the King James. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The King James uses the uh, Roman name for Artemis, which is Diana, and the NIV uses Artemis, which is the Greek name. Same goddess, but two different names. So they shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for hours on end. And that reminds me of religious fanaticism today, uh, where we can see some of these... uh, Extremely fanatic Islamic groups just shouting, God is great, God is great, over and over again, especially when they let off an explosion and things like that. So, these, th- this was a, a fanatic place, Ephesus. It was the center of Artemis' worship. Her temple was there. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. You've heard of the seven wonders of the world? Well, her temple was one of those wonders. And the city of Ephesus was really centered around goddess worship, the worship of Artemis. And there were many, many artisans there who would make goddess figurines, statues, and all the fetishes to do with the worship of this goddess, and they made a lot of money. And and Paul was writing into that situation. And you know, where there is the worship of a goddess, there is of necessity a perverted notion of true womanhood. When you set up a female deity uh, to be worshipped, then the woman have a perverted notion of what true womanhood is. And it follows on naturally that men would also have a perverted notion of manhood, true manhood, because in those situations, true manhood would be suppressed and womanhood would be uh, elevated to the place where it would be the... uh, prime thing in all creation. So um, I had a little bit, did a little, uh, little bit of research into what happens in a society that worships a goddess, both modern and ancient. And uh, there was a researcher there called Rick Branch who said this. When he's speaking of goddess worshippers, he says, For many proponents, an integral part of goddess worship is its prevalent theme of anti-masculine anti-male statements. In this philosophical worldview, since goddess worship is good, then by necessity, any use of masculine terminology in reference to God or any prominence of men in culture or society is generally discouraged. So when the goddess is worshipped, all aspects of manhood are suppressed or diminished. So you could see that if Paul was preaching into a society like that, the woman where, who lived in that society would have had a perverted view of godly manhood and an elevated view of womanhood. Um, so that, that was a bit of a problem for Paul. I think that's really helping us with the context. And uh, furthermore, uh, I looked at what modern goddess worshippers think as well. And There's a quote here from Starhawk who is a self-proclaimed witch. You have to know that goddess worship and witchcraft are the same thing, really. They're very, very closely linked. Starhawk says, The symbolism of the goddess has taken on an electrifying power for modern women. It has exposed the falsehoods of patriarchal history and given us models for female strength and authority. And so Artemis was a goddess there in, in ephesus and and her role was she was to be the goddess and listen to this this might pick up your ears she was the goddess who protected women and virgins and protected women in childbirth she was also the god of hunting do you get the connection between childbirth and the last verse we read i, I can't help but think there's something there i'm not quite sure what it is yet but it might be a clue to understanding why paul says women shall be saved through childbirth. then uh Sadly, the cult of the goddess ha- is being revived today. If you think that goddess worship is an ancient, dead thing, you're very much wrong. Because in the world today, there's become a, a great revival in the worship of goddesses. Not necessarily and only Artemis, but many, many other goddesses. And Paul warns us in Romans chapter 1 and 2 of the danger of worshipping um, created things rather than the Creator Himself. He says there in chapter 1, verse 25, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things, rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. So, just to show you that there is a revival of um, witchcraft and goddess worship. In 1976, so even way back then, in Ireland, a group of witches formed uh, a fellowship called the Fellowship of Isis. Now, we all know, nowadays, everybody has heard of Isis about 50 times this week already. But it's not that Isis. Um, it's the ancient Egyptian goddess called Isis. And they have begun to reintroduce this uh, worship throughout the world. And, uh, you know, we may say that there's nothing to this ancient Egyptian goddess called Isis. That She's just a statue, an idol, or a piece of stone. No, there's a demonic entity behind Isis. And Isis uh, was a manifestation of an evil spirit way back in Egypt, but there have been many, many other goddesses with equally uh, demonic spirits behind them, and they're coming back again today. Who has ever heard of Gaia, the goddess Gaia? That's really Mother Earth. How many people today are talking about Mother Earth as if it were uh, an entity? Earth is not an entity. (laughs) Of course, it's got billions and billions of living organisms on it. But earth itself has no soul. It's not a living entity. Uh, But many, many people today are turning to worship Gaia. And if you do anything uh, remotely damaging to Gaia, then you're blaspheming Gaia. Well, if we deliberately damage the world, we're not blaspheming Gaia. We're breaking our stewardship that God has given us. And we're offending Jehovah, not Gaia. And uh, then there's also a movement that has started up called the Goddess Movement. And these goddesses, as I said, are ancient deities being revived, being brought forward. In other words, they're demons that are beginning to take hold of our Western society. And we shall see more and more demonic manifestations as these demons are increasingly worshipped in Australia. Would you believe it that in Victoria there are 2,091 witches? 2,091 witches and probably within this very council district there are witches in the 2011 census 32,083 Australians identified their religion as pagan and that included 8,400 people who identified their religion as Wicca or witchcraft 8,214 no 4,000 8,413 people who identified their religion as Wicca or witchcraft. And that is so closely related to goddess worship. And that source came from Jackie Sinnerton in the Sunday Mail, September 22nd 2013. So why do I lay all this background? Well I have three reasons I think. And firstly it is basically because our modern culture has been remolded from something deeply Christian to something Um, very much different something godless and part of that has been as a result of the revival of the goddess I believe and we have to work out what that means for us secondly I also say this to show that our days that we're living in are not so unlike the days of Paul and this should be a warning for us shouldn't it I feel, brothers and sisters, that our hitherto comfortable Christian lives are about to change to something radically more uncomfortable. I feel that. We've, all of us who have been around for a while, have had a very comfortable setting in which to worship God. But that has changed in 2015, and I don't think it's going to get any better. And thirdly, I say this because we, if our days are like the days of the Ephesians, then we could be in the same danger as the Ephesian church. What happened to the Ephesian church? Well, we know from Revelation chapter 2, this is what Jesus said to them. Among some really nice things he said to them, he said this, Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. So if our context is similar in many ways, the context of the Ephesians, we therefore would be in the same danger as the Ephesian church of moving away from our first love. And I'm sure all of us who are believers here today, either now or in times past, know that feeling of moving away from our first love. It's not a good feeling. You might be there this morning. But if you are, don't despair. We can come back. We can come back to our first love. And you know, it was in that context of not tolerating um, wicked men. We get lambasted for being intolerant sometimes as Christians. I don't think there are really any truly tolerant people in the world. So you might be intolerant for the right reasons. Jesus said to the people of Ephesus I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found him false that, is, that kind of blew me away when I read it Jesus isn't actually commending them only for intolerance of wicked ideas he's commending them for intolerance of wicked men that's something to hold there for us as we press on It might might be a new thing for us to think like that. But it isn't in the absence of loving these people at the same time. Our God is a wonderful God because he can infinitely love us and infinitely be angry with us at the same time. We can't do that really. But I think we have to seek to, in some way or other, hold the balance in that area. So what we're talking about today is really in the context of a goddess-worshipping society. And then secondly, it's in the context of how we behave in the gathered congregation. Paul is really laying out some instructions here of how Christians should behave when they all get together like we are today. And so he gives some instructions. And from... Paul's general teaching throughout the Bible it's very clear that he holds that men and women are equal in the eyes of God equally loved equally chosen but you know what he also teaches that there are big differences between men and women and you know if we have ears and if we have eyes that will be obvious to us I think anyway more about that in another day therefore is a word that if you're reading the um, NIV, you will not see the word therefore. So maybe when I read it out, you noticed that I had inserted the word therefore. No, it's not I who inserted the word therefore. It's the NIV who left it out. It's in there, and I don't know why they left it out, but for reasons better known to themselves, they did. And you know that when we see the word therefore, we've got to ask the question, why is the word therefore, therefore? So really, once again, it's a linking word between what Paul said previously and what he's now going to say. And if you look back, you will see that Paul was actually giving a mini-summary of the Gospel and then also telling Timothy and the people of Ephesians where his authority came from. He said, I was appointed a herald and an apostle of this Gospel. So what Paul was really doing is he was laying down the foundation of his authority to go on to say, or to give some demands, to give some commands. So that's what he was really doing, and that's why the word therefore is in there. So it says there in verse 8, Therefore I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. So the first thing that we have to deal with in this context of gathering together for worship is a requirement for men. Now, women, don't switch off, because I guess you're not totally exempt from the whole idea of being angry and disputing i I guess you can do that too but it seems to be particularly a male problem of getting angry getting riled and then getting into a dispute at least it is in the church setting uh, it seemed here i want us to look at three things paul is not saying here before we move on paul is not saying that only men should pray publicly so when he said "I, i i want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer that is not to the exclusion of women. Okay. Because in other parts of the world, we get the impression that women had been praying and did pray publicly. So it cannot really be an exclusion here on women praying publicly. So the second thing is, Paul is not even primarily ordering prayer here. He would do that in other places, but he's not primarily saying you have to pray. And thirdly, he's not legislating that men have to lift their hands up when they pray that will be a relief to some of us who are quite conservative who don't like to do that I come from a very conservative church back in Ireland very 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 conservative and uh, I remember one time uh, we sang a psalm in the church and one man complained we can't sing psalms that's what the Presbyterians do (laughs) anyway (laughs) men you don't have to put your hands up when you pray uh that's not what it's saying here this is what the main point is paul is basically saying when you come together as a church it has to be for prayer and not for anger or disputing that's basically his main point quite simple so make sure when you come together to church it's for prayer and not for tearing your hair out or other people's hair out that's what he's on about okay holy hands where does that come from What's that all about? Well, at that time in Judaism, the practice for men when they were praying in public was to put their hands up like that, to raise holy hands. And how did the hands become holy? Well, the hands would have become holy by a ritual washing. Um, Just like the Muslims do today before they go into mosque. They wash their feet, I think, and their hands in a ritual kind of way. So, That's um, where the holy hands came from. And, you know, because our original Christians were all Jews, they carried over this practice into Christianity. And that's the way they did it in the early church. And Paul was just um, talking there, not so much about an outward thing, but about an inward attitude, an an attitude that had peace uh, at its core, a desire to pray to God, um, to reach out to him, but without anger and disputing. And uh, I think Greg Forbes also touched on it on Wednesday night. By the way, Wednesday night was fantastic. We had 100 people here to discuss um, this topic a little bit farther on. And uh, it was so encouraging to see people hungry for God's word coming out. And if you haven't come yet, we'd encourage you to to join us. So there's, there's anger here. Paul would not have mentioned anger and disputing if it had not been a problem. Where did that anger come from? Well, let's think about it. Paul had ministered into Ephesus, first of all, and he left Timothy to take over. uh, Ephesus was a center for the worship of Artemis, as we'd already said. There was false teaching in the church, as Paul had already intimated, and these people were also from a Judaistic background. So, with that mix... There's a lot of fuel for a fight, isn't there? Lots of fuel for discussions and, and arguing things out. So I think that's where the anger probably arose from. Just the conflict of so many ideas at, at that time. Then Paul uses the word everywhere. I want men everywhere. So in this original context, that word everywhere would really just mean the house church is in Ephesus. Because that's the way the church was set up around Ephesus. The And later on, Paul talks about women going from house to house. Basically, it was from house church to house church. Um, They were all worshipping in little groups all over the place. But I don't think it's wrong to expand that and see that Paul's wider vision would have been, and the vision of the Holy Spirit would be, that men in every congregation of God's people all over the world would lift up holy hands in prayer, uh, seeking the Lord. And... uh, This is another encouragement for us to prayer. We've had another previous encouragement from Paul in this letter. And you know what? I'm really, really encouraged that people, some people, maybe a lot of people, have begun to rearrange their lives as a result of these encouragements from Paul. More prayer is going up. More people are attending prayer meetings. More people are praying privately at home and longer. And things are beginning to change in the congregation in a most amazing way. On Monday, Oliver and I sat down and looked at the list of people for the Alpha course. We had three. And that was a little bit discouraging. But do you remember last Sunday we asked for prayer about the courses and people signing up? Do you remember that? Some of you must have prayed anyway. Because from Tuesday, even from Monday evening onwards, people began to sign up for the Alpha course. And now there are 15 or 16 on the Alpha course, including a few leaders. And uh, the amazing thing about it was that as we contacted people, we began to hear stories like, ah, I was thinking about doing that anyway, you know? And your uh, phone call, your text has prompted me to sign up. And here we're finding out that God is working from the other side as well in response to the prayers of his people people lifting up holy hands in prayer and I want to encourage us again to, to get involved in more corporate prayer there are so many opportunities and if you want to start another one um, that, in a time that doesn't really suit other people that's fine let's, let's get as many opportunities going There there's multiple opportunities and so I want to mention again Breakthrough Sunday both men and women Breakthrough Sunday is coming up on the 9th of August. What is that big issue in your life? Is it a relational thing? Is it a prodigal son, prodigal father, prodigal grandmother? Is it something that's really bugging you? Uh, Illness, financial issues, something that will not go away. Start praying about it now. And let's come together on Sunday the 9th and really, really come before the Lord. I want to encourage you also at 5 o'clock tonight there will be another opportunity for prayer. Come then and pray with us. Seek the Lord. So that was the admonition to men to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger and disputing. You might say that, that should be easy enough. We can lift up holy hands and we can stop fighting. Hey, do you know what? I'm not hinting that people are fighting here. This has been one of the most enjoyable, peaceful congregations I've ever been attached to. And I praise the Lord for that. I'm just expounding what's here before me, not hinting at anything that's going on at the moment. Or not going on. So now Paul turns to the woman with some instructions. And uh, there seems to be a few extra here, more instructions for the woman at this stage than there were for the men. And I must to remember again that In this mixture, this deadly mixture of false teaching and pagan goddess worship, there's going to be problems. And that is a situation that is not entirely different from Australia today. I'll read the verse, verse 9 and 10. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And then there's a parallel passage over in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 2 to 5. Paul spe- or Peter, speaking to the woman, says, Your beauty should come not from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, with unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy woman of the past who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. So with this verse, or verses, Timothy is implying, surely, that in the congregation there was some kind of immodesty. Otherwise he wouldn't have said it. There was some kind of immodesty going on. And we know that goddess worship was often sexualized, even today. And this was in complete contrast to the Jewish heritage. Um, there was an attempt the way back do you remember when they worshipped the the golden calf the Israelites began to bring some of the pagan sexualized practices that they had learned into their their religion to worship God and God was furious and God totally banned any ritual sexual uh, things in worship but the context of Ephesus was that these things were in practice and the people that the there was a, a, a group of people who were ritual prostitutes, temple prostitutes, and they dressed a certain way. And this is the background of Paul's um, admonition here. We know from secular writers that there was a problem with immodesty in the whole society. and it, it, People like Sextus, who writes in, in his book called Sentences of Sextus, refers to women who were dressing up in ways that were not faithful. He says... A wife who likes adornment is not faithful. So you can see that even secular people were concerned about it at that time. And so this is what Paul is speaking out against. I did a little research on this and found a writer called Bruce Winter who wrote concerning the context behind 1 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, Seneca, I'm sure some of you have heard of Seneca who was a writer in those days, but He wrote in the fifth decade A.D., so that's around about the 40s, a little bit before Paul would have been writing, and he said this regarding his own mother. Never have you fancied the kind of dress that exposed no greater nakedness by being removed. In other words, a very provocative dress that left nothing to the imagination. The whole letter of Seneca is enlightening because he exposes the problems that were Uh, happening then there was pressure on even married women to dress up like this prostitute class can you imagine that i'll read what it says here seneca notes that pressure was on his mother and other married women of his day to dress and live as the new woman did does that sound familiar it seems to have been a reality then and now that there is pressure on women and indeed on men to dress and act like the new man. Have you heard that phrase, the new man? Well, the new man doesn't last very long because he gets out of date and then there has to be another new man. So there, there, there was a lot of pressure. And since this new woman was actually a class of prostitute, it was a very, very serious matter. Bruce Winter also was on to say that in the Greek language... The phrase dresses and gold were the stra- standard phrase used of the accessories of the prostitute. So dresses and gold were like the bling of the prostitute, okay? That phrase. Then Pliny, he was another writer in that time, he said, um, he recorded that women spend more money on their ears with pearl earrings than on any other part of their person. And that's about the adornment. And then Seneca, going back to that letter that he wrote about his mother, he said, jewels have not moved you nor pearls. You have never defiled your face with paints and cosmetics. And, and then Bruce Winter says, a good job she didn't because the cosmetics of that day were so full of lead they would have poisoned her. <laughs> but anyway, it seems to have been that um, a problem of just a real focus on bling and a jewelry and, and cosmetics um, which was threatening to come into the church. Then there were hairstyles as well. Can you get a look at that one? What do you think of that, ladies? That's a... a right. You needed quite a lot of rollers for that, wouldn't you? Um, Another writer called Juvenile um, reflected on women's virtue, or lack of it, in that day. And he said, um, so important is the business of beautification... So numerous are the tears and the stories piled one upon the other upon the head of the woman, he said. The appearances of the promiscuous woman and the married woman had in some cases become indistinguishable. So that was the context into what, where Paul was writing. That helps us understand why he said what he did say. The appearances of the prostitute and the married woman were becoming indistinguishable in that day and age. So Paul was wanting the believers to, distinguish, or to be distinguished from the evil woman around. And that's why he said those things. And not only that, but it was probably for the protection of the men as well, uh, who are very often and almost always turned on by sight sexually. What a contrast then the Christian woman should be from the pagan woman of the day. And we find ourselves living in a similar age today when the temptation for the, for the ladies is to be very immodest and to uncover as much flesh as possible. And, and that does not glorify God. But Paul says positively, Ladies, make yourselves beautiful with the good deeds that God has prepared beforehand for you to do. And that reminds us of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And Peter says that's an unfading kind of beauty. The beauty of good works is an unfading kind of beauty. All the other kinds of beauty are not lasting. So Paul says, negatively, don't dress up like the pagan woman. Positively, he says, put on the good deeds that will glorify God. And uh, I just stumbled across a quote from a, a young Christian writer called Felicia Massenheimer. She said a phrase that caught my eye. She said, modesty is humility in action. Modesty is humility in action. And I like that. I think it goes for men as well. So I want us to just stop there and go back to culture again and ask ourselves this question. Are we aware of the possibility of being led astray by our culture? I want to ask us that question. Are we aware of the possibility of being led astray by our culture? You see, I often uh, I think of dogs sometimes when I see them so comfortable in cars. You know, it's like dogs have always known about cars. You know, and yet they haven't. You take a wolf and try to get it in a car, you'd probably be eaten alive. A wild dog wouldn't do that. But for for dogs, it's their culture to get in the car now. And for us, we have grown up in this culture. And some things might be second nature to us, but they might be totally wrong. We might be so happy with them, but they might be totally wrong. And that's why we need revelation. That's why we need to walk closely with the Lord. Two influences were vying for the attention of the Ephesian Christians. One was the culture of heaven, and the other was the culture of hell. I just had a little bit of a picture earlier on where it's like um, we're in the middle, and there's a rope tied to this elbow, and a rope tied to that elbow, and there's a team over there called the culture of heaven, and a team over there called the culture of hell, and they're both pulling. And you know what? We, in many ways, make the difference. What side are we going to lean to? Whatever side we lean to, that side will win. That's not entirely the case but I think we have a responsibility to lean towards the side of the culture of God. Allow the culture of God to pull us and we will defeat that side. I want us to ask ourselves some deep and necessary questions this morning. Well, one question in particular. Which influences you the more? Which influences the church the more? Is the church influencing the world more? Or is the world influencing the church more? Now, I want us to just dwell on that question for a moment or two without moving on. Is the church influencing the world more? Or is the world influencing the church more? Now, come in a little bit narrower. Am I influencing the world more or... Is the world influencing me more? Well, we'll go a little bit farther and we'll maybe give a few things that might help us to know what the answer is in truth. There has been a time in our Western history where it seems that the church has had a greater influence than today. For many hundreds of years, the church... Uh, was almost an all-pervading influence in society, whether for good or whether for bad. And it influenced greatly the very core of our law and of our society. But in recent days and decades, it seems that the church has lost its influence. That's what it seems like to me. And it seems that this has happened through a number of things. First of all, the relentless Media onslaught. Loaded media onslaught. Heavily loaded towards values that are not in keeping with God's word and God's love and God's law. God's design for us. Then the ideas that are percolating downwards from the universities. You know that some of the ideas that are percolating downward into society today were the same ideas that motivated the Nazis in the 30s and 40s. Scary, isn't it? Then also, um, I think the church has lost so many debates in the public arena that all of these things have um, caused the culture to shift. I want us to ask ourselves a question. What worldly influences have affected the church in the last 60 years. We can Put them up there, I think. I think uh, tolerance of evil is one of the things that we need to watch out for. How do we tolerate evil? Well, we tolerate it coming into our homes via TV and Internet. We sit and we watch it, and we become a little bit accustomed to it, and then a whole lot accustomed to it, and then it doesn't shock us anymore. Then we don't hate it anymore and so on and so on. We're like the frog in the kettle until we're actually talking and acting like the culture around us. Sometimes we look at stuff and we excuse ourselves from looking at it through what we call um, dramatic license or um, theatrical license. We watch sin and we allow ourselves to do it because of this thing called dramatic license. And then, in the last 40, 30, 40 years, and I I must say, as I look around, I I know that there are many people in here who have been divorced, and I'm not getting a dig at you. I I love you. Um, Many of you are, are very dear to me. I'm just pointing out that divorce has become normalized in our society and sadly normalized in the church. And where did that come from? Did that come from the culture of heaven? No, it didn't. It came from the culture of Hollywood. The first people who, public figures who began to get divorced, were Hollywood actors and actresses. I think Mickey Rooney had something like nine marriages, something like that. And um, it became normalized. When I was going to school, and that's not that long ago, no one in my entire year of 100 people had divorced parents. That's not to say all the marriages were good. That's just to say no one was divorced. And uh, that is something that has come in the culture of the world. And and it's a sad thing. And then um, there's abortion on demand. Then there's um, acceptance of homosexual perversion. And that's banging at the door of the church now. Let me in, let me in, let me in. Are we going to let it in? Sometimes it's already got in. The abolition of the day of rest is not a direct contradiction of the law of God. Many people are pointing now to the Dysfunction of much of the dysfunction of our society to the elimination of the day of rest. Do we have a day of rest? Do we make do we guard it? Might not be Sunday, might be another day, but do we make sure that one in seven were resting? You're going to burn out if you don't, you're going to burn out, and your family's going to burn out too. Then there's the rejection of the Bible as society's moral code. And that is something that we are being pressurized to accept as well. Many, many Christians have been pressurized into saying something like, the Bible is a a dynamic text which changes according to the culture. Yes, it's living and dynamic, but its truth does not change to suit the whims of a culture. It remains the same as God does. And then what about um, domestic violence? It's the talk of the town, isn't it? Everybody's talking about it. Where did that come from? It came from a distortion of true manhood. It came from a distortion of true womanhood, partly. What's, what we've produced in the last 60 years is a bunch of either wimps or tyrants true man in the middle where is he going he's not the one who whacks his wife he's not the one who cowers before her either he's the one who stands up and protects her speaks out for her loves her provides for her these are the things that are banging on the door of the church some of the worldly influences from our culture are we going to let them in so back to our question how far have we been influenced by these things are we winning in the influence war the influence tug of war are we winning are we pulling for the side of the culture of heaven are we pulling for the side of the culture of hell can you picture yourself ropes around both elbows pulling which side are you going for Well the good news is if you've been pulled in that direction you can get back. Repentance coming back to the Lord and and seeking to live for him in the light of his word confessing sin getting back in step with him pulling in the right direction. Remember the uh, Ephesian church? Yet I have this against you you've forsaken your first love Remember the height from which you have fallen, Jesus said to the Ephesians. Repent and do the things you did at first. So there's a way back for the Ephesians and there's a way back for us too. I'd just like to think about the Ephesian church today. Does there exist a church in Ephesus? Oh, bearing in mind that Ephesus is a, is a, a national monument in Turkey but the city nearby, nearby Ephesus. Is there a church there? Well, there is a very small church. There used to be a big church, a thriving church. And the Lord said, if you do not repent, I'll come and I'll take away your candlestick. And that's what exactly happened. For many, many hundreds of years, the witness of the Ephesus church died. The Lord took the stick away. And if, if, The Australian church today, if the Irish church, if the Western church, any church at all, does not keep following Jesus in relationship with him, God will come and take away the candlestick and there will be no witness here and that will be a judgment on the community. What of Eltham if there's no Eltham church? What of Australia if the church dies out? Let's make sure we don't die out. Not by banging drums or shouting and squealing, but by living a godly life of repentance with good deeds shining out for the people. And I know many of us are reaching out. I hear the stories all the time. And we have a wonderful opportunity now coming up to do that in uh, the Alpha course as well. So may the Lord really infuse us with the culture of heaven. May we reach out with joy to our neighbors and see many, many come to know Him as Lord and Savior. May God bless us. Over. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.